boyfriend by the name of Joe said to Coney I'll dear we'll go. Then Nellie started to fret and pout, and to him I heard her shout, Hey, take me out to the ball game. I hope your gloves are oiled and the rally caps are ready because baseball season is here. Adashina Koiki on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. It is a special podcast. Yes, it is episode number 18. It is also our Major League Baseball preview edition. And before we get to our guests, we have three of them on this podcast. I do want to tell you that on A Lot of Sports Talk and A Lot of Sports Talk.com, in the next day or two, we will have our Major League Baseball preview article. It's a case of 20 questions, both in the National League and in the American League. We ask at least one key question about every team going forward in this 2015 season so that's our written version of the major league baseball preview on a lot of sports talk this is the podcast edition of the major league baseball preview on a lot of sports talk we have three guests for you our first guest is fp santangelo former major league baseball player and currently the color commentator for the washington nationals on the mid-atlantic sports network the nationals coming off a 96 win season but another disappointing exit in the first round against the eventual World Series champions, the San Francisco Giants. So we talk with FP about the Nationals going into the 2015 season. Of course, Washington acquiring Max Scherzer from free agency from the Detroit Tigers. He went into free agency and the Washington Nationals able to scoop him up and a great Pitching staff just becomes even better with the addition of Max Scherzer. So we talk with FP Santangelo about the mood of the Nationals going into 2015. Then we go out to the great Northwest. The Seattle Mariners had a great season last year. 87 wins, just missing out of a playoff spot. A lot more is expected in 2015. And we talk with Shannon Dreyer, Seattle Mariners reporter on KIRO in Seattle, Washington. And she and I talk about the Seattle Mariners going into 2015, including how Felix Hernandez, maybe the best pitcher in the game, could possibly improve going into the 2015 season. Robinson Cano going into year two as a Seattle Mariner as well. So we break down the Seattle Mariners as well going into the 2015 season. A lot of people have them as the favorite in the American League West. And then our third interview is with a Chicago super sports fan, Joe Radwanski, the founder of City on the Take. He talks about both the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox. Both teams made a lot of noise in the offseason, and a lot of fans are looking forward to watching the, both the Cubs and and the Chicago White Sox in this 2015 season. So Joe Radwanski joins us, gives us the fan perspective in Chicago about the Cubs and the White Sox. So our podcast begins in just a couple of seconds with F.P. Santangelo, followed by Shannon Dreher talking Seattle Mariners, and then Joe Radwanski talking both the Chicago Cubs and Chicago White Sox. So have fun with this podcast, and we will see you at the very end of the show. After a 96-win season, a lot of expectations are in the nation's capital in baseball. The Washington Nationals heading into the 2015 season as World Series favorites to a lot of pundits in Major League Baseball. And the Nationals definitely want to move on after their amazing season last year, but ending in disappointing fashion in the wildcard round against the San Francisco Giants. And joining us right now to talk all things Washington Nationals and a little bit about his baseball playing career. 
career as well. F.P. Santangelo, analyst for the Washington Nationals on Masson, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. And F.P., thank you so very much for joining us, and how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. Uh, the expectations are sky high. Is that something that, um, from your observations, this baseball team in 2015, are they embracing those expectations? Well, uh, they better be. I mean, <laughs> the alternative is to have zero expectations, like a lot of different cities around baseball. So I think when you look at it that way, that expectations are a good thing and um, people are expecting you to do well because you have a good team. So, um, And I think they're fine. They, I was down at camp a little bit with them. They're very loose. They're ready to go. They're a little banged up as we speak. Uh, April might be a little bit of a struggle right out of the gate, but when you have the starting rotation, the Nats have. Uh, you score a couple of runs, you never know. Uh, speaking of that starting rotation, Max Scherzer uh, signing the uh, $210 million free agent deal in the offseason uh, to join the Washington Nationals, and that already stacked pitching staff becomes something that a lot of people may think is almost an unhittable uh, staff. How surprised were you that Max Scherzer uh, ended up choosing the Nationals? Well, I think a lot of people around here were surprised, and a lot of people were excited. Uh, you know, you, you have one of the most elite pitchers in baseball added to the team that had the best ERA in baseball last year for starting rotation, and um, now you have a super staff. But as we know, the, there's got to be some offense to go with that staff. But uh, from a personal standpoint, being able to broadcast the games and to see Max Scherzer on every fifth-day basis is quite a thrill for me. I mean, just to be a part of this organization and – and see these guys play on a daily basis, whether it be Bryce Harper, Jason Worth, Ian Desmond, Anthony Rendon, whomever, and now you add a Max Scherzer to the mix. I mean, it's just it's a broadcaster's dream to have the rotation they have and to see these guys on a, on a nightly basis. I'm a very lucky dude. Uh, are there any lingering scars um, in terms of maybe using last season as motivation for this season in terms of how the season ended uh, from either last season or even 2012 going back to that year? Any lingering scars uh, from the way last season ended going into this season? Well, if there's lingering scars from 2012, we need to, uh, I don't know, call Dr. <laughs> Phillip from AAA because uh, – that was a long time ago, yeah. and I think as far as last year goes, you'd have to ask the guys, and I think we'll see that play out. Uh, I was never a believer as a player in, in any leftover momentum or lingering scars or anything from the previous season. I think baseball players are programmed to tomorrow's a new day, and if you worry about your 0-4 for 4 yesterday, it's going to turn into an 0-20. for 20. And if you're worried about 2014 and 2015, you probably shouldn't be playing at the major league level, and I don't think one of those guys really is, or they wouldn't be at this level. F.B. Santangelo of Masson reporting for the uh, Washington Nationals. He's the color analyst uh, joining us again on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Uh, Denard Spann starting the season on the DL. Anthony Rendon starting the season on the DL. Jason Wirth just took his first uh, few swings of the spring after his shoulder surgery is the biggest concern for the Nationals this season, at least as you said uh, at the very beginning of April, is the biggest concern this season for the Nationals just staying healthy. Well, I think that's the obvious concern that the average fan would see. Um, obviously, their one, two, three hitters aren't well right now. But I think if you go deeper than that as an analyst or a former player, there, there really hasn't been any, any cohesiveness in camp. They haven't had a chance to gel as a new team with new additions and a new lineup. And I think the reason you want to be healthy out of the gate is so that you know guys get used to a rhythm and playing with each other. You know, this new guy's standing to my right, and this new guy's hitting behind me, and 
you know, even the guys that have been there before, you get that rhythm and that flow going and you take it right into April. So the obvious thing is, oh, they're banged up, which is not a good thing when you don't have your one, two, and three hitters for any team. But to me, the way I'm looking at it is there's no flow to this team yet. There's no continuity. And even when these guys get back, it's not a video game where you just plug in, you know, your one, two, three hitters and you go. It takes time. And they're going to be, the game is going to be moving at a different speed in May. Uh, when they come back, you know, guys are going to be ramped up in full speed and they're still going to be in spring training mode. So, you know, a lot more goes into it than just, you know, not being healthy for opening day. I think this is going to be a, a battle for the Nationals for a little bit until they get everybody healthy and, and, and get on the roll, which yeah, once they do that, I think they're as good as anybody. F.B. Santangelo of Masson reporting for the Washington Nationals. He's the color commentator on Masson. You mentioned that it's not a video game where you just uh, plug in your one, two, and three hitters and then you go off. Um, how many times do you play video games? Do you play MLB 15, the show? And if so, do you I don't. Play? Okay. <laughs> All I right. don't. Not a video I game don't. player? No, I have a life. I don't play video games. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, how's the transition uh, from from third base in the outfield to first base for Ryan Zimmerman? How do you see that uh, panning out? He's looked good in spring training. He's an athlete. He'll be fine at first base. And when I say fine, I mean really good. Uh, I've watched him play third base now for four years, and I've watched him before that from afar. Um, and he's as good a glove man as I've ever seen at the hot corner. So he's he, he's done a good job so far at first base, and he's going to be great. And I think it's big for the guys that are throwing the ball to him to have confidence in the fact that if they uh, throw a ball in the dirt, he's going to pick it up. And they had Adam LaRoche for all those years, and you know they could just throw it over their blindfold, and he would pick them up. And I don't know how many errors Adam LaRoche saved a year, but I would imagine that Ryan Zimmerman eventually is going to be uh, as good as LaRoche with the glove as Adam was. Uh, the bullpen took a little bit of a depth loss. There's no uh, Tyler Clippard uh, now with the uh, Oakland Athletics, I believe. Drew Storen uh, closing once again. Uh, how concerned uh, are you for the bullpen uh, going into this season without some of the names that were there the past couple of seasons? Well, it'll play out. I, I, I would imagine there's a little bit of concern there for everybody involved, um, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, I think Jansen's banged up a little bit, and that's going to – Take some time. He's got some tendonitis in the shoulder, and he was supposed to be the setup guy for Tyler Clippert. So now, you know, with uh, injury comes opportunity, and now some kids are, when I say kids, some, some relatively newer guys to the ball club, and Blake Chinen uh, and uh, Aaron Barrett, guys that, that are going to have a chance to really shine when they're ahead in the eighth inning and hand the ball to Drew Storm. So um, I look forward to seeing the challenge that these guys are facing, and, and it's their time. It's, it's time to step up and and show that they can be a guy at the major league level. So it's an exciting time for some young players in the bullpen. F.B. Santangelo, color commentator for the Washington Nationals on Masson, joining us. And I have a few questions uh, that have been posed uh, to you through me uh, from a uh, Washington Nationals uh, super fan who I had on, who we had on our show a few times ago talking about uh, the Washington Nationals. Her name is Angela Halstead, and she wants to know to start, where did There Goes the No-Hitter come from? <laughs> right when um uh when a no hitter is broken quote unquote early on in games when well that, that's that a really good question and I should probably reintroduce that um in the beginning of the season on the broadcast it's something that Felipe Alou uh, who was the biggest influence in my baseball career and one of the biggest influences in my life as my manager in Montreal and in the minor leagues for the Expos he used to say that uh, after our team got the first hit every day he'd turn to the bench and say there goes the no hitter. And his explanation was that that's the first thing you have to take care of as a ball club is the no-hitter. 
then you take care of the shutout, and then you take care of scoring more runs than the other team to win the game. Um, so every day, per tradition, he would turn to the bench and say that. So as a tribute to him, uh, being one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life, uh, and a, one of the biggest influences in my life, I do that every day on the air. And a lot of new fans think I'm joking when I say it or, or take it as a joke, but actually it's a tribute to Felipe Alou, who's, uh, like I said, one of the greatest people I've ever met. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Uh, was there ever a time where you were the person that broke up the no-hitter for the Expos? That first time? Uh, I would imagine I was a leadoff hitter a lot, and if I got to <laughs> hit the first time up, I did it. So, yeah, I probably did it a lot, actually. <laughs> did you mutter it to yourself while you were at first base or second base? Like, up oh, there goes no hitter. No, I just listened for Felipe in the dugout because there was nobody in the stands in Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another question that uh, Angela um, had uh, f- uh, for you. Uh, it's almost as if you seem to pay attention to how batters and umpires communicate. Um, was there was there ever a time that you argued a third strike call with an umpire and the umpire mentioned some of your statistics as to why they called you out or the umpire called you out on a third strike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was there's a few times when they look up at the scoreboard, they know what you're hitting, and they said, you know, you can't argue balls and strikes when you're hitting 240 or something like that. In fact, I can't remember the exact story, but, you know, um, it's just, it's part of the game, the give and take with the umpire and the hitter, and uh, I got along with all of them. They were great guys, and, and uh, I'm still friends with them to this day. Okay, well, fair enough. There was no real heated uh, possible uh, argument that you had that once they mentioned it to you that you said, well, you know, <laughs> you're not doing great either. No, no, I got along great with those oh, guys. fair enough. Uh, do you have any favorite running spots in D.C. or in the D.C. area? I do. I run to – I live in Navy Yard. I run to the Capitol – uh, hang a left at the Capitol, go down the Monument, keep going to the Lincoln Memorial, and back. And it's about 6.2 miles from where I live, and I probably do it two or three times a week. I do uh, want to ask a question of mine. Uh, how was it playing in Montreal? I remember uh, you being uh, brought up and seeing you during a Mets telecast. I, I grew up in New York City uh, watching you um, and the Expos. How fun was it being in Montreal? I know it was during the years where there were question marks as to whether uh, the, the of the team's sustainability in Montreal, but how was it as a player playing for those fans and especially in that situation where it was in a state of flux? Well, the state of flux part wasn't good, but yeah. that kind of came after me. I was there from 95 through 98, okay. and uh, as far as playing in the city of Montreal in front of the fans, it was a wonderful opportunity. One of my favorite cities on the planet to this day, um, a great place for a young player to break in without a lot of media scrutiny and a lot of media pressure and a lot of not a lot of pressure to win. Um, but we had some good years there. Uh, we had a, a good team in 96 that was in the wild card for the last day. Um, and it was just a wonderful opportunity to play in Montreal, and I have nothing but fond memories of the ballpark, the fans, everything about it. I love it there. Uh, what was the last time you made it up to the city of Montreal? I haven't been there in, I don't even know, in ages since... <laughs> I don't know, uh, maybe since 2000 with the Dodgers, so about 15 years. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, hopefully um, I spur you on to going to Montreal just for a little uh, sightseeing, I well, guess. Go ahead. Maybe I'll go there for the All-Star break. Who knows? Okay, yeah. Uh, one last question, and this is uh, from Angela. Of course, the end of last season, last game, Jordan Zimmerman and his no-hitter, and it was completed with that amazing diving catch by uh, Steven Souza in left field. Uh, then he gets traded after the season. Um, how do you think Souza will be remembered, if he will be remembered, in um, Washington Nationals' annals? 
Well, he will always be remembered because it's probably the greatest defensive play in the history of the organization, even though it's only been here for 10 years, counting this year. So um, he'll always be remembered here by fans, uh, especially uh, the players, uh, Jordan Zimmerman, all of them. I mean, it was one of the, the greatest endings to a no-hitter ever, and uh, it was just an amazing catch, and he's an amazing person, and we wish him nothing but the best in Tampa. And how composed were you when, after the catch is made, Bob Carpenter says it is a no-hitter, and then you uh, just so smoothly go, there is the no-hitter. I, <laughs> I know there was some pressure to make sure to nail that. Yeah, I had to, the timing had to be right, and you had to let the fans kind of die down. I think in situations like that, less is more, and you just want people at home to feel like they're at the game. So there was an electric crowd, the loudest I've ever heard in Nats Park, and you just kind of lay out and let the cameras and our director and our producer do the talking. And then I thought once it started dying down, it was a good time to say, and there is a no-hitter, and I did. So it was, a, it was an honor to be a part of that. Uh, spoken like a really, really good analyst. Uh, former Major League Baseball player, current analyst, avid runner as well, uh, F.P. Santangelo, uh, thank you so very much for joining us in terms of talking about the Washington Nationals. We definitely hope to catch up with you down the road, and we'll see you uh, at the um, very beginning of the season. At least we will on television since the Mets in New York will take on the uh, Washington Nationals. So, uh, F.P., thank you so very much for joining us, and we hope to catch up with you soon. All right, my pleasure. Anytime. After a season which saw the Seattle Mariners win 87 games and finish just shy of a playoff spot in the American League, there are high, sky-high expectations in the Emerald City for the baseball team. The Seattle Mariners getting ready to start the 2015 Major League Baseball season at home against the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim on Monday. And joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk Baseball Preview Podcast, we are joined by Shannon Dreyer, Seattle Mariners reporter on KIRO in Seattle. And first of all, Shannon, thank you so very much for joining us. How are you doing today? Not bad. I'm ready to go home, though. <laughs> it's been a long uh, Cactus League season, huh? It really has been. <laughs> uh, after um, last season, 87 wins, almost getting into the playoffs. Uh, before we move forward, going back to the 2014 season, how did and how does the Mariners, or how did the Mariners view last season? Was it successful? Was it somewhat disappointing because of that losing streak they had uh, near the very end of the season? How do you think the team viewed last season? Well, the ending was certainly disappointing. Uh, I don't think that, I think they had a feeling that if everything broke right for them at the beginning of the season going in, they would have a shot at the playoffs. I, I don't think they ever knew that it would be as real as it would be. And you look at what it is, and basically it was a year five or six of a massive rebuilding project. And I really think that this year was kind of the target year to get there and to get that close. That was disappointing, but it was a success in that they identified what they needed to do. They developed some young talent, and they took their steps forward, and at the end of the offseason, you just had so few uh, blank spots that really it was the first time that I think Jack Zarenza could go into the offseason and have a realistic expectation of filling all those spots because there were less. So I think it was a success in the grand scheme of the plan, as they call it, and basically rebuilding this organization. But it was very, very disappointing what happened at the end. Uh, there are expectations, as uh, you have said, and as I've said uh, at the very beginning. How aware 
are the players in the clubhouse of those expectations from a lot of the pundits from the outside? No, completely, because they've seen all the pundits in the clubhouse this spring. They've been very popular on the national scene. Everybody's come, come through the clubhouse a couple of times for many of them. But, you know, that that is kind of regardless. Their expectations are high, too. When you come just a few innings shy of the postseason, it makes you that much more hungry. When you look at what they were able to do last year and the pieces that they were able to add, in their minds, they really it's not an unreasonable expectation that they be in the postseason. They're expecting that. So I think that they're able to tune out anything from the outside. But, yeah, I think they've got the drive and they've got the expectation to be there in October. Again, Shannon Dreyer of KIRO in Seattle, Seattle Mariners reporter, joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk Baseball Preview. You mentioned the pieces that the Seattle Mariners added in the offseason. Uh, we're going to talk about the mainstays uh, very shortly, but which, in your opinion, is the most important piece? There's Jay Happ, there's Nelson Cruz uh, as well that the Seattle Mariners acquired. Uh, I guess what's the most? which player was the most important piece in your mind to fill uh, going into this season? Well, I think it has to be Nelson Cruz. Uh, they haven't had really a, a kind of stereotypical DH4 hitter in a long time, and they got next to nothing from the DH last year. I mean, literally hit under 200 last year from the DH position. So you had to back that up not only just for the production that the DH brings, but to help Robinson Cano out in the lineup. And, you know, Cano himself says, noticed it right away that he saw different pitching in the Mariner lineup than he did in the Yankee lineup. And that was coming up with a down year for the Yankees. Previous years before that, when they were a little bit more stocked, he was seeing you know something completely different. And he very much championed to bring Nelson Cruz over, although he was very patient about it when he signed his deal. He sat talked to the ownership and kind of looked over the plan and knew what the plan was and actually told us that he knew that it wasn't all going to happen all at once, that they weren't going to sign everybody at the same time that they signed him. But... You know, they were going to go out, add these pieces. Cano was, uh, I'm sorry, Cruz was basically handpicked by Cano. He seems to be a great fit in the lineup, in the clubhouse, uh, a little bit more of a hitter than I expected him to be, really watching him go through his batting practices. He's, you know, trying to cut down on the strikeouts. He's trying to use the whole field. He doesn't like to think of himself as an all-or-none guy, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when these games are for real. But that was, without a doubt, their biggest need was to find somebody to hit in that four spot. You mentioned Nelson Cruz trying to use the whole field in terms of his hitting. That's something that Robinson Cano has done ever since he came up uh, to ma- into the major leagues and with the Yankees and now with the Seattle Mariners. Uh, any adjustments that uh, have you seen with Robinson Cano in terms of getting used to or trying to get used to Safeco Field in terms of year two going uh, into playing at Safeco Field? He used the field um, very well, but at Yankee Stadium, he was able to yank balls uh, down the right field line for home runs. Um, any adjustments you've seen Robinson Cano uh, try to make going into the second year as a Mariner and the second year going into Safeco Field? Well, it's tough to see when you're in Arizona. But yeah, exactly. I, I think, Sorry. you know, if he has the pitches, I think the biggest adjustment that he made was, was that he didn't try to do too much. He knew that he wasn't going to get that many, you know, pitches to hit and to really hit. And so he just really kind of very much took what was given to him. You saw him just loop the single, move the runner right into right field. That was kind of the direction that he went the most. I think now that they're going to have to be a little bit more careful with him, I think that if he's able to see a couple more pitches, safe feel. I mean, it's not Yankee Stadium with the right field porch, but it's, it's a friendlier line. It's not, you know, it's not, you hear about safe field 
just being such a pitcher's park. But they moved the fences in a couple of years ago, and it's playing quite fair right now. In the right field, so they built that for Griffey. And it, there are definitely home runs to be had down the right field, flying in Safeville Field. And we really haven't seen Robinson do that yet. And I think that that perhaps is something to look for, that perhaps now feeling a little bit better in that lineup, feeling like he has a little bit of protection, maybe we'll see it. Uh, there are probably opponents of the Seattle Mariners that hope you don't answer this question um, in a way that may fear them even more. But is there a way that somehow Felix Hernandez could be a better pitcher in 2015? And if so, how? <laughs> well, we've asked him that question, and he says, yes, you can always get better. And he said that giving up fewer home runs was something that he would like to do. Uh, I think with Felix, the biggest thing is, is just to keep him healthy. I mean, that streak that he went on last year, the 16 games, that was absolutely ridiculous. I'm not sure that can be topped. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, is that if he can get out there every fifth day, and that's going to be a real challenge for Lloyd McClendon because now they're building and trying to have the staff ready so that they can pitch those extra games in October. And Felix is a guy that you know, he's taking about a game, not because he has to as far as the game situation, because he's trying to just anywhere he can cut down on those innings because he would easily throw 250 to 260 if they didn't do that, and that's before you even get to the postseason. So I think keeping him healthy, keeping him rested, giving him the extra rest where you can, uh, I think will keep him on par with what we saw last year. I'm not sure you can see much better from him. He's, you know, his changeup, if it's on, that's not a pitch that's going to get any better because it's basically unhittable right now. So, yeah, I, I think that might be a safe bet to say, but uh, I'd always allow for surprises. Uh, last season, you mentioned uh, the wear and tear on the starting staff and making sure not to have that happen this season. Late in the year, uh, you know, Felix Hernandez was hit around a little bit. Uh, Hishashi Iwakuma was hit around a little bit uh, as well. There's talk about a possible six-man rotation, at least to begin the season, if not for a good majority of the season. How realistic is that in terms of the Mariners possibly going with six pitchers, especially since I believe that they have have a legitimate sick possible six-man rotation if they wanted to do that no they're not doing it off the bat their okay. rotation set right now and they're five starters and uh, i wouldn't call it a six-man rotation it's probably the same thing that we saw in the second half of last year where they manipulated off days and um well they made a lot of roster moves in the second half wherever they could to get a pitcher up uh, and there are several instances where they brought a reliever up for a day and then sent him down for the next day and there were a good amount of spot starts that were made as well. Uh, you, you had a starting five, and then you had two guys, uh, Brandon Mauer and Erasmo Ramirez, who combined for I think another 24 starts. And not all of that that wasn't that wasn't because of injury. That was the majority of it was just to kind of get guys rest, and they'll take that opportunity to do that where they can. They might start that a little bit earlier in the season this year than they did last year. And then another thing to keep in mind that they're going to have to do because they do have that guy in Rowena Elias that you said. Uh, Danny Holson, their number one pick, uh, I believe in 2011, is coming off of a major, major shoulder surgery, and uh, he looked fantastic in camp. And Lloyd McClendon has not wanted to even see him. He doesn't want to be tempted by what he might have in Danny Holson. So he's in camp for a short while, and Lloyd McClendon, every time he was asked, said that he's, you know, getting ready for 2016. He's working toward 2016. Well, we talked to Jackson Renzik on one of our shows a couple of weeks ago, and he said that if he's healthy, we should see him up 
probably near the end of June. And, well, how do you work them in? Is that a bullpen? What's the situation there? And when you break it down a little bit further, part of his deal when he originally signed was he went right on the 40 men. So Danny Holton's out of options after this year. So they're going to want to get him up in the big leagues and pitching, if he's healthy, and get him that first exposure. So uh, I think that's going to lead even more to, you know, if he, I, I can't call a six-man rotation because it's not going to be every time around, but maybe a modified six-man rotation is what it is. But uh, I'm sure that you will see others come in, not just because of injury, but others come in so they can push the regular starters a day or two and give them that extra rest. Shannon Dreher of KIRO in Seattle, Seattle Mariners Talk, here on the A Lot of Sports Talk Baseball Preview. I'm guessing that one of the rotation spots that is set is for Taiwan Walker, who has been lights out and then some it's almost to say that lights out is kind of an understatement um at least during the cactus league uh this season he was another player that last year uh was injured had a shoulder injury and seattle wanted to make sure to kind of ease him along and not rush him um are there any limitations going into this season with taiwan walker well there will be innings it's only 22 and he didn't really start pitching at full time until he was 16 and i don't he hasn't pitched more than about 140 in the minors, and he's coming off a shorter season last year as well. So, you know, I don't think you can pencil in 200 for him. So they're going to have to manipulate that because if he is what he has been this spring or if he's even 80% of what he's been showing in this spring, you're going to want him not just for the season, but you're going to want him in the postseason as well. So, you know, that's another reason why you'll probably see them bring up spot starters here and there to stretch things out for the starters. Uh, Is there a leader? On this clubhouse, in terms of a vocal leader, it, does this clubhouse need a vocal leader? Is there that person or people um, uh, that is sort of a leader, or do the leaders on the team just do it on the field with their play? No, they've got a great clubhouse. Um, Felix is a leader. Not that he's going to get on anybody, but he is going to keep things light, fun, and everybody loves playing behind him, and he's certainly a presence in that clubhouse. Robinson Cano, on the other hand, will get on people if need be. So without a doubt, he's a leader. And that was so interesting to watch him come to the Mariners last year because he was always the young guy on the Yankees. And they had plenty of leaders. And he stepped right into it and very much embraced the ball and is great at it. And um, he's got help with uh, Nelson Cruz is already starting to get a little bit vocal. You can see his experience there. And a lot of the younger players look up to Kyle Seeger as well. And he's got kind of a quiet confidence where if he says just a couple of things, I'm sure the message is received. So uh, it's a great clubhouse. It's a clubhouse that Lloyd McClendon basically lets kind of the guys that I just talked about really and throw in Fernando Rodney while you're at it really kind of run things. He, he doesn't have to do a lot. They've got plenty of guys in there that, that can keep a good clubhouse, keep guys on the right path, and a couple that can kick some butts if needed. Uh, Mike Zanino, the catcher for the Seattle Mariners, essentially uh, young guy into the major leagues. Um, his power numbers are great. Uh, last year, 22 homers. His average, his on-base percentage, you would have to say, you know, ghastly, I guess. Um, what are the expectations of Mike Zanino? Do they just want him to be that power threat and not necessarily worry too much about the average and on-base? Do they want to increase that average and on-base even a little bit or a lot? So with Mike Zanino, what is uh, the expectations, uh, given that he has uh, produced on a power level uh, in Major League Baseball, but the um, average and on-base numbers needing to improve? What are the expectations of Mike, and what do the Mariners want from Mike Zanino this season? Well, first and foremost, he is a tremendous defensive catcher uh, beyond his years. I mean, this is a guy who at 22 
handled the pitching staff of veterans from seven different countries and, and took it over and, and really didn't, he never needed that veteran presence behind him or veteran backup. This is a guy that stepped in so that got it, took over and, and took probably more on his shoulders than I have ever seen any young player come into the Mariners clubhouse and take on his shoulders. He, you know, his makeup is, is off the charts. And when you talk about leaders, uh, just give him a couple more years, and, and he's going to be, you know, the guy in that clubhouse. I have no question about it, not just with the pitchers, but with the rest of the team as well. As far as the hitting goes, the power is phenomenal. He is crazy strong. Uh, I, I said this last year, and nobody's ever hit a ball in a game out of Safeco Field. I think he might be the first to do it. He is very, very strong, and he can basically just run into 20 home runs in a year. I think we almost saw that last year. Yeah, they'd like to get the average up. They'd like to get the on-base percentage up a little bit. And to that end, they did a lot of work with him. He came in a little bit early to spring training, and he's had a phenomenal spring. The strikeouts have been way down for him. The power numbers have been way up for him. And uh, I think up until his last two games, he had an on-base of over 400 during the spring. So we'll see how those changes, uh, you know, if they play into the regular season. But the biggest thing for him, he's a little bit more spread out at the plate. He has a plan when he goes up to the plate when he gets to two strikes. He had all the look of somebody that just had the game speeding up on him when he got into those situations last year. And it was just really not an area of concern with the Mariners last year because they knew how much he had on his plate catching-wise. They didn't want to overload him with the hitting. They are just like, just go out there and do what you can do. Well, now they're starting to take steps to work with that. You know, is he ever going to be Buster Poser? Buster Posey with the average and on base? No, but he's probably going to have to outslug him. So I think that this is a player that, you know, we're going to be hearing about for many, many years. And when I look at him, I kind of think that he's probably going to be in the vein of Kyle Seager, that this guy is going to be another huge foundation piece for this Mariner team for a long, long time. You mentioned how well he handled the staff and uh, with the staff uh, being represented by seven different countries. Uh, do you know if Mike Zanino knows Spanish or Japanese? At least some words. No, he just speaks catcher. He speaks baseball. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yes. Um, again, Shannon Dreyer of KIRO, Seattle Mariners reporter, uh, joining us. Uh, Lloyd McClendon, in his first year, uh, just, I guess you would have to say, just pushed a lot of the right buttons. Uh, what about Lloyd McClendon makes he, along with the clubhouse that he has, such a good match so far? You know, he, he's just a good manager, and it, it was interesting because when he came in, anytime you, you take over a new team, and I think that that's one of the reasons why last year can't be too much of a disappointment because there was just so much change. But, you know, at the beginning of spring training last year, Lloyd didn't know any of the players. He didn't know half the organization. Uh, he knew his coaches, but they were all trying to get to know each other, and the work that had to be put in it took a long, long time. And he wasn't always good with us, the media. And uh, I was like, well, I don't know if I like this person. But as long as the team likes him and they're winning, I guess that's fine. This year it's night and day difference. And we're seeing his personality come through. And it's something that we've heard from players and coaches. But, you know, he has a real ability to take the pressure off. And that's a big thing for the players. And, you know, they had an eight-game losing streak last year. And he was the last one to panic about it. He deflected quite a bit. And I think that helped quite a bit he's good with the x's and o's which is very surprising because you know when you talk to this game you're like i'm not sure about this but then when you watch what he actually does 
you realize that he knows every number that's out there. He knows every rule that's in the rule book. I'm going to tell you, when he goes out and talks to an umpire, he's probably right. He's <laughs> got that inside out, and it is, it's you know, comical at times. But as far as, uh, you know, just, just game situations, and he obviously knows hitting, being Detroit's hitting coach for so long, what blew me away was how good he was with the pitchers. That uh, that just shocked me. It's first time he went out to the hill, it, it was to go talk to a pitcher. And he didn't, he didn't send the pitching coach. You, most of the mound visits were made by Lloyd McClendon last year. The only time you saw the pitching coach go out of it was something that was, you know, totally mechanical. So he's just really got his finger on the pulse of this organization. He knows his players. His players trust him. They believe that he's got their best interests in hand. And there's really kind of a family atmosphere around it, and he's a big part of that. Uh, just a couple of years ago, even less than a couple of years ago, there was a – miasma that was emanating from this team and it was i guess highlighted by the uh, seattle times piece about uh the dysfunction and the i guess supposed chaos between uh eric wedge the erstwhile manager of the Mar- uh, mariners and the front office um as well what has changed in less than a couple of years to go from having seattle being talked about as a team that is in utter dysfunction to a team that now has World Series aspirations. Well, let's remember there was one article that said that the team yeah. was in utter dysfunction. Yeah, one article, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, you know, and it was a very one-sided yeah. article as well. And I think that when you look at it, uh, Jack Salenzik was a first-time GM. He made some mistakes here and there. There's no question about that. But uh, there is, I think, no question that he's got the right people in place right now. And, you know, I, I think there were some false starts in, in getting the right people into place. But, uh, it, you know, Jack, Jack and Lloyd talk every day. They talk first thing in the morning. Uh, they talk throughout the day. It's not a situation where one is just saying yes to the other the entire time. They don't agree on everything, uh, but they respect each other, and, and they're able to come to, you know, enough agreement and working agreement when they do have a disagreement just to move on. And uh, I think, you know, I honestly think that the biggest thing is is that they got some of the growing pains out of the way, again, being the first time that Lorenzic ran an entire organization, because I think a lot of people don't understand that a GM and vice president of, uh, I think he's everything, player personnel, does more than just goes out and signs the players and makes the trade. I mean, he is in charge of the entire scouting staff. He's in charge of the information staff. He's basically in charge of everything that's not above him, and that's about four people. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of attention, a lot of relationships that have to go on that you just don't even see. And and I think it was an adjustment. I think he got the right people into place. Uh, I think there's a lot of trust in between that group, and uh, I think they're on a good path right now. Shannon Dreyer, Mariners reporter on KIRO Radio in Seattle. Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, we definitely are looking forward uh, to watching the Seattle Mariners uh, this season. We are on the East Coast, but uh, we will have the Major League package, so we'll be up at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern time to watch the uh, Seattle Mariners. Uh, th- there's a lot of expectation for this team, and uh, we expect, a lot of people expect great things. And uh, Shannon Dreyer, thank you so very much for enlightening us even more about the team team going forward. Shannon, thank you so very much for joining us, and uh, we'll catch up with you down the road. Sounds good.
Maybe outside of the San Diego Padres, no two teams made more big splashes in the offseason than the two teams that reside in the Windy City. Both the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox made headline news with their acquisitions, acquiring ace starters like Jeff Samarja, ace bullpen pitchers like David Robertson, Robertson and even an ace manager uh, with Joe Madden coming over from Tampa Bay to go to the north side of Chicago. So there is a lot of excitement in the second city in Chicago, Illinois, for baseball going into 2015. And joining us right now to talk about all things Chicago baseball is Joe Rodwanski, the founder of the website City on the Take, reporting on all things Chicago sports and one of the premier sports trivia savants in this country. You might have seen him a couple of times on the popular sports trivia show, Stump the Schwab, on ESPN. Joel, thank you so very much for joining us, and how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing absolutely phenomenal. I'm enjoying this gorgeous uh, spring day here in the city of Chicago, and the sirens are going off. So I really, I'm really sorry about that, Eddie, but you know how the south side of the city of Chicago is over here. <laughs> I do. It's always active. <laughs> uh, did you ever think spring weather was going to show up in Chicago after this uh, weather? Uh, well, you know, I didn't think it was ever going to come. I was, I was joking with you know everybody in the family that we had to enjoy any type of sun that we got. But it's the Chicago tradition that we always know the nicest day of spring is always the day before the first game of baseball in the city of Chicago. So it's actually the nicest day we've had in a long time. Here this particular Saturday, it's because the Cubs open tomorrow night against the Cardinals. It's it always happens like that, and tomorrow night it's going to be absolutely freezing. That's what happens. <laughs> uh, but today is great, right before the start of baseball season, and the weather is nice, and the off season had to be described as very nice for both uh, the Cubs and the White Sox. Going into the off offseason, uh, what were your expectations of either the Cubs or the White Sox in terms of making uh, moves to improve their teams? And after the off season, with all the moves that both of these teams made, did that did all of those moves even surprise you? Uh, yeah, they definitely did. And, you know, before I, like, break down each team, if you look at the situation where both teams were in, you know, they're in very similar situations. We're talking, they both had 73 wins last year, and they're both in the centrals in each league that could say that they're both the best divisions in each particular league. And both teams improved without really selling out the soul of their franchise. And they're still both very healthy and viable with a core of young players for a year, you know, for years to come. You know, you brought up the Padres because the Padres, the Cubs, and the White Sox, without question, made the most off-season noise. You know, they won the off-season, you know, this particular year. Yeah, I'm not saying the Padres sold their soul, but, like, it was all, you know, through free agency, you know, taking on bigger contracts, you know, giving up a little bit to have, you know, have Matt Kemp, you know, you know get paid by the Dodgers, but, you know, getting him. But if you look at what the, the Cubs and the White Sox did, they did a phenomenal job of, like, getting that cherry on the, you know, like the cherry on top of the Sunday at the at that point. The Cubs have a really well-built organization all the way throughout. And then being able to go out and find an ace that they don't really have throughout all the multiple prospects that they have in, their, in the number one rated minor league organization. And then also being able to get catchers that are leaders and can teach young pitchers and Miguel Montero and, and David Ross. I mean, that, that's really the type of free agent uh, acquisitions that you want to that you want to be able to make. I mean, they rely on these guys, but it's not 100% dependent, the whole success on the season. You know, 
one starter out of five, you know, is important, but it's not, you know, totally vital. But if you look at what the White Sox did, they had very uh, particular holes in their lineup last year. Uh, they didn't have enough guys getting on base at the top of the order. They bring in Melky Cabrera. You know, whether Melky Cabrera would be up or down, depending on, you know, what, you know, what type of offseason he has. But at least, you know, they're going to have somebody on base in front of uh, Jose uh, Abreu. And another thing that the White Sox didn't have last year is they didn't have an ace. It was, uh, it's, besides Chris Sale, who's one of the best pitchers in the, in the game of baseball, it looks like they had Chris Sale and a bunch of number five starters. Well, adding Jeff Samarja will give the White Sox a right-handed ace, so that's a huge, huge upgrade. And, you know, even when they did get good starting pitching in 2014, Eddie, their bullpen was absolutely atrocious. I, I, I wish I can give you the exact stat, but their ERA last year was 29th in baseball, and it was like around 4.97. And, you know, that's absolutely brutal. Their bullpen cost them a heck of a lot of games. Uh, Jose Quintana, who is probably the best pitcher that uh, people outside of Chicago don't know about, I mean, he led the, in 2013, he led all of baseball and no decisions, and it was basically because of how bad the, the bullpen was. And in 2014, he didn't lead in no decisions, but again, he lost. Seven, he was able. He didn't get seven wins that he should have because of the bullpen. So, you know, with Quintana, Samarja, and Sale, uh, that's a pretty good, uh, you know, one, two, three in a rotation. So if you, if you look at what Rick Hahn did by bringing in Dave Robertson in the bullpen, Zach Duke in the bullpen, and then Adam LaRoche, to protect Jose Abreu and Melky Cabrera to bat uh, uh, Cabrera to bat in front of Abreu, I mean those were excellent additions, and it really addressed the needs of the 2014 White Sox. So you, you look at them in in the Central. My goodness, they look really good this year. This is a, I'm a Cub fan, you know, so <laughs> I'm being objective about this, Eddie. So. I guess I guess we'll uh, start with the Cubs um, after this. Uh, af- for the next question, we'll start uh, with the Chicago Cubs. But both of these teams made great moves. And you talked about a lot of the moves on the field in terms of the players with the gloves and with the bat. But with the Chicago Cubs, even with a John Lester signed, uh, maybe their biggest move uh, was Joe Madden uh, managing uh, the team. How excited are you to have Joe Madden with all the moves the Cubs had made with John Lester and some of the young guys, a lot of the young guys coming in with Joe Madden? And how does that settle the Chicago Cubs going into this season? You know, you used an excellent word by, by saying settle. And you know what? He is the most important uh, addition of the offseason. And, and I, can, I know I, you can hear have people say, you know, he won't get anybody out. He'll never get a hit or anything. But we know one thing. He's going to be there 162 games a year. We don't know if Lester is going to get hurt. You know, we don't know if any of these other additions or the, the prospects will ever pan out. But a man that uh, can have, you know, analytical about the game but still have the pulse of the game, you know, that's really good to have. That's always there every single game. And, and Eddie, the belief of being able to win is what the Cubs really need because, you know, I can, you know, we can go on and on about the curse. They haven't won one since 1908. But the truth of the matter is in 2008 when the Chicago Cubs led the National League and win, when they went to the playoffs against the Dodgers, in game one, the place was packed. It was it was magical. You know, oh, we're going to win it this year. We're ending the streak. We got the most wins in the National League. The Cubs went down two nothing in that game. You could hear a pin drop, and everyone's like, "Oh, here we go again." And like the players felt that. You know, Madden being there 162 games 
a year, it's going to be a positivity. It's going to be a feeling. You know, a lot of people can say, you know, that's overblown. The Cubs need that. They might be right about the other 29 teams in baseball. There's this weird aura around Chicago Cup baseball, and I swear to you, people want to, like, start just making excuses immediately, and we need a manager who's going to that, that, you know, snip that in the bud and will not let that you know, get into the heads of his 25 players. Joe Radwanski, founder of City on the Take, reporting on all things Chicago sports, joining us right now. Maybe the biggest news in two of the biggest stories in the uh, in spring training for the Chicago Cubs revolve around one person, Chris Bryant, because of his play in the Cactus League and because he's going to start the season uh, in the minor leagues. And we all know the story. We've heard it ad nauseum. Um, as a Cubs fan, uh, how did that make you feel uh, once you uh, heard the news or I guess um, the eventuality that Chris Bryant was going to sit get sent down, not because of his performance, uh, at least in our opinion, but because of the uh, contractual um, stipulations. How did that make you feel and how do you think that made the fans feel in Chicago about uh, Chris Bryant starting in the minor leagues? Yeah, well, let's face it, Chris Bryant should be the opening day starting third baseman for the Chicago Cubs. How did it make me feel that he isn't? It makes me feel good that the Cubs actually have leadership in their organization that is willing to do the tough thing, the tough thing, uh, you know, basically media-wise, everything name-wise, and be able to pull the trigger and make sure they ensure that the top prospect in baseball is going to be on their roster for 6.92 seasons instead of just six seasons. And, you know, and hopefully they do this, they do this right. I don't know if we have to go and beat the horse. Eddie, because I'm sure everybody understands the whole service time rule that, you know, if we, if we have to go into that. But to be, if he ends up panning out and really being the top power hitter of his generation, which, am I going overboard by saying that's what he's being projected as? I, like, don't, ends- I don't think you're going overboard in the sense of what we saw in spring training. But I, I know it's spring training, but still, like, these are, not I, 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 <laughs> are usually not put up in spring training. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree with you. But you know, you, like you have, and you know, he led college baseball in home runs when he was there last season. And he led professional baseball in home runs last year. You know, so like, I, I, I it could be possible that we're looking at a guy that you know has a you know a, a run of hitting three hundred home runs in like you know seven or eight years. And if he's somebody that's going to do that, you know, I don't blame the Chicago Cubs for making a very tough and unpopular decision. At, and taking advantage, let's face it, taking advantage of contractual stipulations and keeping them down for an extra 12 games. So, that, I mean, and we all know this. He deserves to be in the starting lineup because he, he's performed, and he made it a point when being uh, interviewed, I, I believe, by ESPN, and he, he basically said, I, I'm disappointed that my performance didn't get me onto the team. And, and, and honestly, as a Chicago Cubs fan, I don't believe in coddling athletes. I, I believe in players should get paid what they deserve. Don't overpay them. They, you know, people should earn their money. But I would say five or six years from now, if the Cubs are in a situation where this kid is panning out, Eddie, I think they should make it up to him. Hey, listen, we know we're, you didn't get the free agency a year earlier. We're going to pay you this amount of money. Please don't hold a grudge against us. <laughs> I mean, that's how good I think the kid could possibly be. I'm, I'm worried that I hope they didn't make him mad with this whole sending him down for the first 12 games of the year. But it's the right thing to do. I'm glad they did it. In year 101 
of Wrigley Field going into year 101. Uh, Wrigley Field is getting a uh, facelift. And uh, going into opening day, the bleachers are, are not going to be ready because of the eventual construction of the scoreboard uh, in left field. Uh, do you think that in the long run this is the right thing uh, for the Cubs? There's a lot of people on both sides of the equation. So when you walk uh on Waveland Avenue and you see the cranes and the construction and everything going on to such a, a storied stadium. Uh, do you see it being the right move in the long run? Without question, it's the right move. But there, there is a pang of sadness, and there's a few things, though, that are going to bother me. First of all, they need to upgrade that stadium because I want it here for my kids and my grandkids to see it. And we don't need, like, stuff and concrete falling from, uh, you know, from the rafters and hitting anybody like there, there has been issues in the past. So, like, the building really does need an upgrade. They need a bigger clubhouse and all that. But, you know, the thing that I'm really worried about is, is the Jumbotron. Because, you know, as much as people can always talk about, oh, Cub fans go there and they party at Wrigley Field, I, we're never going to apologize for having a good time when we go to a baseball game. But it was the one park in baseball where when your dad t- took you there for the first time, he would tell you, hey, son, you better watch this game because there's no scoreboard here to give you an instant replay of what's going on. So I guess nowadays everybody having their phones, you know, that magic really isn't around anymore, so you can go ahead and put that jumbotron up. But I always liked that because there was something about Wrigley Field, Joey, so if you were, if you miss something, you miss something. You you had to go, you had to wait till you get home until you actually saw that replay again. So I actually kind of missed that vintage part of the game. But you know what? In eight years when... Chris Bryant has, just say he ends up hitting 50 home runs a year and he wants to be the first half a billion dollar baseball player, they're going to need as much income revenue as they possibly can get. (laughs) That is very, that is very interesting that you mentioned the lack of scoreboard at Wrigley Field and having your father tell uh, a son or anyone tell anyone that if you do miss something in the game, you miss it until the, well, if it's a day game, the 6 o'clock news, or if it's an evening game, you know, the 11 o'clock news. So that's very mm-hmm. that's a very interesting take in terms of uh, of having the scoreboard and kind of the uh, nostalgia that gets lost uh, when going to a game that you really have to focus on the game. Again, Joel Radwanski, founder of City on the Take, joining us right now. We'll switch our attention a little bit to the Chicago White Sox. You mentioned all of the moves that the White Sox made to, you would have to say, win a winnable division, even though the uh, World Series representative from the American League did come from that division. The Cy Young Award winner uh, in the American League came from that division. Mm -hmm. Corey Kluber uh, uh, for the uh, Cleveland Indians. Of course, the Detroit Tigers are there. They've won the division for a good number of years now. How realistic is it for the Chicago White Sox, not just to contend in 2015, but to maybe win that division in 2015 with the Tigers, uh, even though they're you know without Justin Verlander to start the year, still have Miguel Cabrera. Indians are coming up. Uh, the Royals are the defending champions in the American League. Mm-hmm. How realistic is it for the Chicago White Sox to do what they need to do in 2015. Well, you know, I, I do think it's a it's a possibility without question. Uh, they they know they got the great additions like we talked about. You know, baseball prospectus doesn't believe it. They they believe that the Sox are only going to win 77 games. Where Las Vegas says has the over under at 83. That's a really big gap right there. But if you look at their division, like you said, the Tigers. You know, they look like they may have taken a step back. Uh, just a simple fact, uh, you know, losing Max Scherzer, you know, who knows how, you know, who, who knows how good, uh, 
Justin, uh, sure, I mean, Justin Verlander is going to be, you know, with his whole triceps and all that. So, and their bullpen is absolutely atrocious over with the Tigers. The Royals, you know, it's without a doubt, you got to love their pitching. You got to love their defense. How are these guys going to play with the target on their back, with the expectations? You know, they, they were laying in the weeds for years and they were all of a sudden the team everybody loved. Okay, what are going to happen when there's, you know, the scouting reports out and everybody treats them like the American League champion? Um, and then the Indians, the Indians really need a little more. They had a lot of guys that had pretty good seasons last year, and they really needed to have them again. And I don't know if they've added enough. The, the White Sox were the team that didn't lose anything and addressed all their issues. So, you know, uh, the baseball perspective, saying they're only going to win four more games than the 73 they won last year, I, I really think is way off. And, and, and I'm not, like, putting the division down because I think it's going to be a real competitive division, but, those three teams took a step back, and I moved. Maybe two teams took a step back, and the Indians are about the same. And the White Sox should have a really, really big jump up. If Aviel Garcia, he's the right fielder, that's going to end up being the fifth hitter after Adam LaRoche is batting fourth for the White Sox. He has not had a healthy season in Major League Baseball yet, but basically, he's like people joke around and say he's the Bo Jackson. Of like of nowadays baseball, like if he had grown up in the United States, he'd be playing American football. Uh, he's had knee issues, shoulder issues, elbow. He's, he's kept on getting hurt. If he ends up being the 30-30 guy, like uh, they, they say he's going to be, and if you get a fantasy baseball draft, that might be like a gem you might want to try, like in the sixth or seventh round. You know, he could, and that could end up being like the, the, the guy that turns the White Sox from being, you know, that 77-win team to that 85-win team and really contending in the central end. You know, you could get into one of those two playoff spots or win the American League Central by winning 87 games this year. And you would still be a really good team because I think it's going to be a competitive division. Uh, Robin Ventura, I know it's only been a couple of years being a manager, but of course he was a very good player uh, for the Chicago White Sox before he moved on uh, with his playing career. How good of a fit is Robin Ventura, even though he came into the White Sox as a manager without that managerial experience. How good of a fit do you think he is for the team, or is he still just coming into his own as a manager, and it's still a wait and see in terms of how good Robin Ventura can be as a manager? Um, yeah, I guess, you know what, let's, I guess we're going to have to do a wait and see. And then the reason why I, I say that is, first of all, I'm impressed that he's been such a good manager because he never politicked, and all of a sudden Jerry Reinsdorf was like, hey, you know, we're going to hire... Robin Ventura is our manager. We're like, what? How did that happen? You know, and, you know, they had a good season. He was there his first year. You know, but since I cannot blame Robin Ventura for the, just the futility of the bullpen, no matter who they went down to last year, they just got pounded. And, and the guys that would get somebody out every once in a while, those guys will get hurt right after. Uh, I mean, it really isn't Robin Ventura's fault that the, the team blew about 25 blown saves in like the first hundred games last year it was it was amazing how bad the the blown saves were last year with the White Sox. So uh, in some fact, you know the team didn't implode and they they kept winning at basically the same rate. It was all that great, but the fact that the team didn't implode with all the blown saves that's usually a good sign for the manager that he was keeping the team you know in there. So he this is his make break year though. He's got the lineup. Uh, we're going to determine whether or not, you know, he can take a team that has all the ingredients and if he can make something good out of it. Uh, if I put the number at 0. 0.5 and I told you number of Chicago baseball teams to make the playoffs in 2015, 
Would you take the over or the under at 0.5? I would I would take the over. Okay. We got okay cuz we got 10 teams out of 30 that make them. I would say that I'll take a 50-50 chance on either one of the Cubs or the Sox even though I'd have to say it's really I would say the White Sox are a 50% chance to make the playoffs and the Cubs are about realistically about a 30% chance to make it and there's there was a lot that would have to go right for the Cubs and and, and one of them is just simple fact that rookies don't play like rookies and I, I don't see that happening so so more White Sox than Cubs if you think uh, one of the teams makes the playoffs yeah, yeah I really do uh, if you if you look at the the National League Central my goodness I mean like the the Cardinals and Pirates are extremely talented ball clubs that you know like know how to win and, and the Reds if healthy are I mean they're just as they're better than the Cubs if they're healthy mm-hmm. but that, I don't, obviously the Reds cannot stay healthy in 2016 I will not be saying that same instance I will be much more braggadocious one year from today I promise you that Patty. <laughs> But 2015, we'll just leave it, at least with you. If you can get one of the two teams in the playoffs, that'll be a positive uh, year for the city of Chicago in terms of its baseball. Uh, Joe Radwanski, founder of City on the Take. Go to the website cityonthetake.com for all things Chicago sports, White Sox, Cubs, Blackhawks, Bulls, anything you want in Chicago sports. And um, don't test him in terms of sports trivia. I know that from firsthand experience. Uh, Joe Radwanski. It is a pleasure getting to uh, uh, spend a few minutes with you talking Chicago sports. Um, before I go, how many uh, games do you think you will head to in terms of White Sox and or Cubs combined? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a diehard Cubs fan, and but I'm smart enough to live in the most beautiful neighborhood in the world, which is on the south side of the city of Chicago, a little nook and cranny called Canaryville. And I walk to about 10 White Sox games a year, and I go to about 10 Cubs games a year. And as a matter of fact, I'll be at opening day. With the Cubs tomorrow, somebody just called me like, I want to go with you. Oh, thank you very much. I'm buying this guy plenty of beer tomorrow. So uh, I guess my... I won't have my first story out on Monday until noon, everybody. And, so, and you oh. are a brave man, too, living on the south, south Side and being a Cubs fan, too. <laughs> uh, I, this, is, this is no lie. Uh, about a minute after the White Sox won the 2005 World Series, someone yelled into my window... The Cubs suck as loud as they could. <laughs> That's what, honestly, I would expect nothing less. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm sitting there like, oh, I guess it's not at least someone in Chicago won. Cubs <laughs> suck! Oh, that's right! Oh, I wanted to kill somebody. That was upset. <laughs> uh, but, but, but 10 years later, there's a lot of expectations and some good things that a lot of people expect from Chicago baseball. Joe Rodwanski, thank you so very much for joining us. We will definitely catch up with you down the road. Appreciate that. I hope that was good enough of an edification for you going into the beginning of baseball season. We thank Joe Radwanski so very much for joining us along with Shannon Dreyer of KIRO in Seattle, Washington, and FP Santangelo of Masson for the Washington Nationals for sharing their insights on their teams that they follow going into this 2015 baseball season. So thank you so very much for joining us once again on the Alana Sports Talk podcast. That is it for our Major League Baseball preview edition. Make sure to stay tuned to a lot of sports talk and a lot of sports talk.com for our coverage of the women's final four from Tampa, Florida. The Yukon Huskies going for another national championship, Notre Dame, Maryland, and South Carolina trying to put a stop to that. 
Thank you so very much once again for joining us, and we will see you down the road on episode number 19 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Until then, you take care. Bye-bye. Root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Because it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old.